0: The important thing to recognize here is that we are in in a shift when it comes to the marketing ecosystem. Some of the platforms are losing their efficacy, they're becoming saturated, but also we are at this inflection point where an individual person can create more and influence more than ever before.
1: Hey, hey, welcome to this week's episode of Marketing Against the Grain. I am your co host, Kip Bodner. We are here with another fun filled episode to take you behind the scenes on all things marketing, growth, entrepreneurship, and just kind of miscellaneous of the internet. And as always, I am joined by the man who hasn't slept in weeks because he's too busy reading your tweets. (laughs) He's the insomniac of marketing. Kieran Flanagan, Kieran, what's up, man? Yeah, I like it. Haven't stepped in four weeks, and I still find that funny. It's completely true. But more importantly, Kieran, we're joined by a very special guest today—the one, the only, Steph Smith. Before we get into the show, here's a quick word from HubSpot. Long hours, small teams, uninspiring content—marketing for a startup is hard work. Thankfully, HubSpot for startups can help you grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects all your teams together. Plus, they have a bunch of resources to help you scale, and they offer discounts up to 90% off. So if you're ready to crush your marketing, look no further than HubSpot for Startups. To see how much you can save, visit HubSpot.com startups. Steph welcome to the show. Steph is somebody we deeply appreciate, respect in the world. One of the best creators that I know. We're going to deep dive on the topic of creators and brand building and creator programs with Steph today. Welcome.
0: Thanks. I'm stoked to be here. And I will say to the audience, I have slept in the last four weeks. <laughs>
1: yeah, you and I both, because we're
2: actually normal human beings. I've entered the shadow realm. I've entered a new <laughs> parallel universe that you can only actually get to if you haven't slept for four weeks.
1: Kieran, I was on Twitter last night, and you were tweeting at basically, I think, like 30, 4 a.m. your time. It's a mess. I was worried about you.
0: I saw that, Kieran. This is a new thing for you, though, where you used to be able to sleep and now you just have this like new insomnia.
2: I don't know. I was doing all the Wim Hof stuff, the breathing, the cold therapy, and then my body just seemed to go into a different kind of sphere of energy (laughs) and I haven't
1: been able to like (laughs) shut it back off. We're, We're working on trying to get Kieran an eight sleep. They don't ship to Dublin. I've
0: got one. I've got one, too. They're amazing, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, Kieran, you've gone down the whole health path. Like you, you've got to get an eight sleep.
2: So I, I have an in Kip and I have someone who's kind enough to make this happen for me. So it looks like I'm going to get an A sleep. That would be one of the many things that I have changed about my sleeping arrangement.
0: You're just going to go full 180, though. We're, we're never going to see Kieran again.
2: <laughs> no, he's just going to sleep. He's
0: like, absolutely no sleep to 24-7. Sorry, guys. I am I quit because I can't stop sleeping.
1: Sounds like heaven. <laughs> All right, Kieran, I got something that I want to kick us off with, Kieran and Steph. You ready? Yeah. It comes to us from our friend Sean over at My First Million. Has a great newsletter called Milk Road, which everybody should subscribe to and read. Really, really good newsletter on all things Web3, crypto. But he did a great job summarizing a trend that I have been watching the last week on the internet, which is the trend of people buying three and four digit number domain names on Ethereum Name Service. Yeah. That would be like buying 1999. Ethereum or 789.Ethereum. And so you're like, why the heck are people doing this? This makes no sense. Well, basically, you could buy a three digit ENS, Ethereum Name Service domain, a few days ago for about $50. Now the cheapest one is $10,000. And the reason for this is because people are using them not just to have normal domains, but to set up subdomains. So let's say you have an NFT, part of an NFT collection. Uh, we'll use Board Apes as an example. And you've got ape number. 857. Well, you can buy 857.eth and then you can set up a subdomain like Board Ape, Yacht Club, B-A-Y-C dot And basically you can have a custom domain just for your NFT to build on the intellectual property, to build the community. All this crazy shit that is happening in the world right now is like blowing my mind. But it reminds me a lot of what happened with domains in the early days. And then domains became a huge part of business and marketing and brand building. What do you think is happening both of you with this trend in ENS the communities that are being built around these new and emerging types of domains?
2: The first thing is big up ENS cuz it's gone up since the airdrop it's <laughs> pushing the price up.
1: <laughs> go ENS.
2: <laughs> I don't know, what do you think Steph?
0: It definitely reminds me of early days with domains and people recognizing that just like real estate in the real world, digital real estate matters, right? Mm-hmm. Being able to have someone go and search a particular word and get a single word domain or just go directly to that com was important. And I think there maybe is an even more important layer with crypto because when you're currently transferring from one person to another, you have this long ass code that you have to basically locate someone by. And it just makes sense to simplify that. The question is whether... ENS in particular is going to be the particular set of real estate
1: standard or the
0: standard exactly that people will go towards. So I think people are placing bets on that.
1: Well, Steph, I, th- I think you nailed it. The biggest difference between domain names is in the 90s, you had dot-coms. And that's really all that mattered. That's still all kind of that matters, really. Mostly are coms But they were all on one central registration service. Now you have Ethereum name service, Solana name service. Each blockchain has its own name service. And so it's like, what's going to win? Do I have to have all of these domains across all these different chains? It's very complicated. And Kieran, I want to kick it to you. If you were a brand, if you were a marketer right now, And you were seeing all this weird stuff happening in the Ethereum domain space. What do you do? Do you stay out of it? Do you start to wade into it? How should people think about it?
2: Can I answer that after I tell you a funny domain story?
1: Yes, please. (laughs) Of course.
2: (laughs) Because this is actually happening. This is a trend that's happening. I haven't read into it, so I don't know exactly what Google are trying to do. But talking of domains as a marketing strategy, one of the things that people who used to hang out in all of the Black Hat forums uh, used to do, did I hang out there? Yes. Yes.
1: Tell people what Black Hat is. There are a lot of people who don't know what Black Hat is.
2: Black Hat is sketchy things that you could do to actually rank things in Google. So Google used to be a lot more fun when it was much easier to do sketchy things to rank things in Google in a short amount of time. I don't know if people know this, but most domain providers like GoDaddy, you can actually sign up to buy a domain even when someone else owns it. And so when it expires, it goes into an auction and that owner does not know that that domain has gone into an auction. They forgot to renew it. And then you can buy that domain from them. And what you would do is you would just like internet archive the site to see how it looked and you would just recreate the site exactly. So Google would never really know that it had moved. And then you would just point all of the links to your own website. And I remember like when I was really early in my career, I was doing this and thinking, this is like awesome. And then this like, really awesome woman's probably in her 60s or something i accidentally bought her like site that she had all about like fishing and stuff like that and she wrote me this email that really like broke my heart it was, like, was a real change in turning point in my career <laughs> that's crazy. like oh, oh like i grew up you know i had pictures of my sons and i really forgot to expire and i don't know how to get it back and i know you're probably gonna want me to buy it and i was like no just like i'm a horrible human
1: <laughs> just
2: take the domain <laughs> just take the domain back i don't mind
0: imagine it wasn't actually an old woman it was like some guy who just wanted <laughs> yeah. his domain back yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: so he could point the links to someone else <laughs> look i think uh, digital real estate is more important than ever and if i'm a brand and i truly am plugged into it i would still buy my real estate now before it goes up in price and people start to squat on it i think there are rules i can't recall that there are squadron rights, or, you know, com and stuff like mm. that. But I, we're a long way from that in terms of crypto and Web3.
0: It's almost like insurance, right? Yes, right. I mean, especially if we're early stage, which we are, buying it now is going to be way cheaper. And you're going to place a bunch of bets. Like you said, Kip, it might be ENS, it might be another chain. But like, the point is, you're getting this insurance. And it reminds me of that guy from Fast who had a bunch of bad PR recently. <laughs> but he, if you go back down in his history, he like screwed over Qantas, I think, that airline, because he bought that domain and then he sold it for millions. And so it really is just insurance for companies to get on this now.
1: Yeah. So I think two things, if you're listening out here to this, one, you can go buy your company name on Ethereum names service, for example, for pretty cheap. It'll be a couple hundred bucks to hold it for a few years. It's very cheap insurance to Stephanie's point. And you should go and do that. The second thing you should understand is that the utility of these new domains are very different than just hosting a website. Yes, you can map a website to an Ethereum domain name, but you can also take payments. You can link it to your social. There's a lot more utility. So this insurance is actually cheaper when you consider the long-term utility versus something like a classic.com. And I think if you're out there and you're a marketer, you're a business owner, it's worth taking the 30 minutes to go buy the couple of domains relevant to your business and own them for the next three to five years as all this plays out. Right.
2: Can I quickly go to Learn to Earn? Yes. Yes, please. This is something I would love to get thoughts on. Have we talked about the Jack Dorsey tweet that went 2.9 million to 14,000?
1: We haven't, but I love that there's a recurring theme on this show of Kieran forgetting everything we've talked about. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to allow it because you haven't slept in four weeks. <laughs> Before I get to Learn to Earn, first
2: tweet is this guy bought it uh, Sina Estiva. He is a CEO in the blockchain space he bought the Jack Dorsey tweet for 2.9 million put it on the market for 44 million and i think the bid is less than 14,000 so all that glitters is not gold in web3 but one thing i wanted to talk about is learn to earn We've talked about Learn to Earn on the show before, Kip, but with Steph, you here, I would love to kind of get your thoughts. My first experience of Learn to Earn was way back at the, at the very start of Web3, where Balaji who set up a newsletter, 1729, where you could actually go in and he would give tasks each day where you could do those tasks and earn Bitcoin. And since then, you've seen a ton of aggregators in the space get a lot of funding to do these Learn to Earn. So what do we mean for our listeners by Learn to Earn? For the most part, what it means is there's these aggregators that are pulling in Web3 enthusiasts and brands can actually upload tutorials to go learn their tool, coin, go do DeFi, go do NFTs. And it's a really great way to like pay people to educate themselves on your tools. I would love to hear if you think there is any valid version of that in a non-Web3 situation. Like if you're a Web2 company today... Is this a good idea that you could enact in a different way? Or how do you guys feel about it?
0: Yeah, so I've seen Coinbase do this, right? So they they pay people to take certain tutorials. And I think the simple answer is you don't need Web3 for this, right? In fact, I don't even know if Coinbase is enacting it in a Web3 way. But I mean, I've thought about this in the frame of courses. So a lot of courses, especially self-serve courses, have abysmal completion rates, right? And you wonder why they do. And it's really that accountability layer. And so why aren't course companies, instead of charging, let's say, $500 for a course, why not charge $1,000 $1,000 for a course, and for every segment that someone completes, they give $100 back. Yep. Or maybe mm-hmm. they give Love that. 700 of those dollars back, and it's actually cheaper, but it enacts that accountability, which then creates the viral loop of people sharing that they finished it. And so I, I think there's a ton of ways that Web2 companies can use this to just think through, like, ultimately, what is the goal that we want people to accomplish? And do we need to incentivize people to do that. And we can probably these days do it without the middlemen. I think I've heard you guys talk about this on the pod before, mm-hmm. but before you had to pay Facebook or some other platform, or you had to pay someone to refer someone else today, you can actually just pay someone to almost refer themselves or to actually just do the task that you want them to do.
1: Right. Steph, I think you hit on something there that was really, really important that I want to underline for everybody listening, which is, I think it used to be that the perceived value of an education was what you paid for it. What was the cost of that education? And that's just fundamentally not true anymore. The value of that education is how many people in the world have this education, how applicable the skills are to problems. And once you realize that, then it's like, great. Instead of trying to make short-term money and just charging people for this education, how do I get... A critical mass of people with this education so that I can go solve a really massive market scale problem for my business or in my industry. And I think that's what's really changing in kind of the pay-to-learn, earn-to-learn kind of space. You know, look, for the entire 1900s, we were in this place where companies had all the leverage. There was lots of labor and and an excess of the workforce to do the work. That is not true anymore. There's so many jobs in the world where we don't have enough skilled people to do those jobs. And so it's just a natural next step that Earn to Learn is going to be a core part of how most companies go to market long-term.
2: Course completion rate is a great one. You, Demi, had a stat before. I don't know if either of you know the exact number. I'm pretty sure it was like less than 10% of the courses actually get completed, don't Hold me to that, but it was a. Re- I remember seeing the number, and it was like mind-boggling how many people pay for the courses on Udemy and just don't touch them because it's a dopamine hit. Oh, I'm going to learn this thing now, but I never actually decide to learn it. Two other like kind of examples of where it could work in a web two space is both kind of aggregators, right? G two that's a software aggregator and allows you to look at reviews for websites. It's not too hard for them to act something where you can actually pay and get discounted on the software if you do a demo or do something on their site. And Zapier, I was thinking, which is like a connector between APIs, also could do something like that. So I agree with Steph. I think that there is real merits in the learn-to-earn space that you don't need to have Web3 incentives like coins and, and things like that to actually do. Totally.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not through coins, but even if you think about what happens on social, there's like maybe not a learn-to-earn approach, but when you post something on Twitter, you are getting feedback immediately that you're providing value right. to that platform through likes and retweets and follows. And so the same system could be approached through a more Web3 incentive structure, but there's a lot of incentive structures that exist in web two, But most companies aren't thinking about like, how do I reward someone directly? They, they, they create these like Quite complex loops of like, we're going to pay someone else to attract these users to the platform to then do X, Y, and Z. And instead, you can just think about like, what's the like end goal that you want someone to do and, and figure out how to just literally reward them for doing that single thing.
1: Right. With really simple incentives, right? That's the point you're trying to make here, I think, Steph. It's like, you want those incentives to be as clear and as simple as possible. Yeah. And the mechanics of them don't matter. It could be really manual if the incentive is good enough and it's very clear. And that's what we're seeing is that we're changing our incentives as we go forward in the next generation of marketing. And those incentives are going directly to the end user much more than they ever have before.
0: I've got a cool marketing thing that I saw recently, if we want to jump into it. Yes, we do. So you guys have talked on the podcast a lot about how certain platforms are becoming saturated, becoming more expensive. And I think it's important for marketers these days to think through like what are some more niche ways to just target their audience or to get attention. And I noticed one thing that a few companies are doing. Have you guys seen these Spotify playlists that different companies are making?
1: I've seen like one, I think, but you're probably way more into it than I have seen. So give us the story.
0: Yeah. So just again, a couple companies are like, how are we going to attract mass amounts of people, but maybe not attract them through Facebook or running an AdWords ad. Instead, they've created these Spotify playlists. So I'm going to name three companies. One of them was Lego. Oh, cool. And the playlist was so simple. All it was, it was basically the sound of Legos as white noise. So like Legos <laughs> yes. like clicking together.
1: That's amazing. Genius.
0: People loved it. I guess people, you know, listen to it as they're working, whatever it is, that playlist, at least since I saw it, had over 100,000 plays. There was another pasta company that created these pasta cooking length playlists. So basically, you're cooking pasta.
1: Oh, I like this. You're
0: like, okay, I've got eight minutes. I'm going to throw on this playlist so I know exactly when my pasta is done. That also went super viral.
1: Oh, that's cool. And then- That's so smart.
0: One other one was KFC France basically created this bucket bangers playlist. Which I think was just a compilation of all the songs that referenced fried chicken, which is hilarious. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, and that also went viral. So I just wanted to share that as a fun little marketing hack that a bunch of companies have found a way to pursue.
1: Well, I would love you two to break that down for me. Like, why were those successful? What are the elements of those playlists that got people to respond
0: I think in a couple of the cases, like Lego, Lego was able to find something that they loved about Lego, but wasn't in your face. It's almost like nostalgia, like, oh, the Lego clicking sounds and something that people could engage with without it being a direct sell. So I think that's one thing that worked for the Lego example.
2: It brings something small about the brand that you love into the forefront and does it in a really fun way. And then the pasta one actually brings fun plus utility, Mm -hmm. right? It actually has actual utility if it's time to how long the pasta takes. We talked about this at the CSA, this marketing should be surprising and it should tap into emotion. And nostalgia is actually one of the most powerful emotions, like the biggest it's huge success Netflix has ever had is Stranger Things because it reminds you of all of the cool things you loved about 80s films. And like nostalgia is just such a powerful thing to tap into if you can do it correctly.
1: Yeah, like I think what's interesting here is Lego played on the nostalgia, which is deep in emotion and exactly what you should do if you're like a long held brand like they are. You have a pasta company which is essentially selling a commodity product right it's flour water and sometimes eggs it's as commodity as you get and they leaned into utility and a way to differentiate on a platform and way that was really different to experience it and then you have kfc who was basically trying to activate their super fans where it's just like hey we know that like having fried chicken is this special experience like Why don't you make it a bigger celebration and create a whole vibe and a whole mood around it? And so what's interesting about those three examples you gave, Steph, is they all worked for different reasons. There wasn't just one kind of cookie cutter path that they all took. They all worked for a different reason. And I also love that they all did it in a way that nobody would have thought and just building a playlist on Spotify.
0: You think through the marketing channels that are out there, or at least most marketers, and there's like maybe a handful that they automatically go to. But ultimately, you can market to anyone as long as there is... An audience, right? And so right. people are getting more into esports, for example, or in this case, Spotify. As long as there is a group of people who have captive attention going towards something, you can insert yourself if you're smart in that way as a marketer. It doesn't have to be just through Google. It doesn't have to be through Facebook or through the kind of mass marketing channels that we're familiar with.
1: 100%. And there's, and there's two reasons marketing fails. It's because you focus on yourself and you don't execute that marketing well. But the other is just competition. When something's really saturated, it's just really hard, even if you do a good job, to resonate and stand out. And so what I love about the Spotify example is there's way less competition in marketing playlists because that's not what most people are trying to do because most people are just using playlists for their personal use. And so it's easier to stand out on that channel than some of the other channels that you talked about.
2: One thing we haven't talked about in the podcast, so Steph isn't only an incredible creator, she is the brains behind HubSpot's creator program, which she launched. And I can tell you from actually working with Steph on that and seeing all the things she had to do, it's really complicated. It is is really hard to put together a creator program, much harder than I had anticipated. (laughs) And so what I would love to do is quickly for our listeners, define creator programs, and then kick it over to you, Seth, to kick us off on, like, why should brands even care about creator programs? But I wanted to tee that up with something to make sure it's like contextual for our audience. So creator programs, like there's three categories. You two can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's really like creators who build, right? Developers. You see this in the Web3 space. We're spending billions of dollars on trying to get creators and developers to build functionality into the different chains, into the different NFT platforms. There's creators who create We see this a lot on the Web2 platforms like social, TikTok, and then there's creators who influence, creators who wear your clothes and influence you. Mostly see that in the B2C space. What I would love to start with is, Steph, from someone who has had to put together a creator program that is one of the few, maybe the only that exists in the SaaS market, like quite differentiated, why should any brand outside of the big Web3 chains, outside of the big social media platforms, care about a creator program for their business?
0: It's going to be hard for me to answer this because as you said, it's it's a complex question and even like what people define creators as has changed over time. And I also think totally. people now view creators in one way, but they've existed for decades, if not centuries. So I'll start by just saying that caveat. But I guess the important thing to recognize here is that we are in, in a shift when it comes to the marketing ecosystem, we've touched on some of these things. Some of the platforms are losing their efficacy. They're becoming saturated. But also we are at this inflection point where an individual person can create more and influence more than ever before, right? So if you were to think back to two decades ago, we had creators. Britney Spears was a creator. She created music and she influenced people. Go, Britney! And so when Pepsi paid Britney, and I was a kid who idolized her, I was like, I want to drink Pepsi. So this stuff is not new. But before... You could only really access or partner with these mass creators that were you know you could effectively say celebrities, but today Joe Bro in Iowa can pull up his phone and start creating on TikTok and very quickly build an audience if he creates great content and so we have this democratization where people are able to create content anywhere and a lot more content is being consumed through these, you could say niche or individual creators more than ever before, right? Again, it used to just be kind of en masse and today it's through every individual. And so as some of the typical platforms that brands partner with are becoming saturated, they need to look to the people who are growing, right? Who have this influence and it is through these independent creators. Now you do have to be careful that you know the right creators that are gonna align with your brand, that are going to provide ROI, that do actually have, Significant influence. But that is one of the reasons why brands are having to look to creators because, you know, quite frankly, they are just a growing segment of the attention economy, you could say. So at the end of the day, I think every industry is going to have to work with creators because, again, they're just capturing the attention and the influence in the market.
1: One of the things I love about this topic is one of the things we've committed to everybody listening is we're going to go deep and give people, the real talk on like how you do all this stuff and how you think about this stuff differently. And this is something we've done at HubSpot to make a pretty big swing on all this. Like, is it better? Is it more effective? The three of us think it is, but like prove to a skeptic that this is better than just running ads on Facebook, doing some own social media. Like what is the power and utility above and beyond just kind of the trend that you just outlined?
0: Yeah. So I will say that it is something that a lot of brands are trying and I think you've touched on this on the podcast before, Kip. Ultimately, you have to structure this in a way where you see the upside over the long term. And that's going to incorporate being really thoughtful about IP. Because if you are just investing in all their creators, I'm seeing a ton of brands do this, and they have no long-term relationship with those creators, they are throwing money away in some cases. And they would be better off just investing it through a, a direct conversion platform like Facebook. But for the people who do know how to do this effectively... The way I'd put it is if you put your money into Facebook, you're getting a return today, but you are not really investing in anything significant a year from now, five years from now. If you are able to set up programs that allow you to partner with creators in the long term and see some of that upside, what you're effectively doing is placing a bunch of bets. And those bets can have exponential payoffs. Some of them will be abysmal, but effectively what you're doing is similar to like a VC betting on you know, a bunch of companies is you're able to hedge in certain ways, but you're also able to target certain niches that you wouldn't be able to as a larger brand. And you're just able to take certain risks that you wouldn't be able to otherwise and see some of that upside. I think that's one of the most important aspects of, of partnering with creators is you know, as a brand, you can only have one CEO that can be your headline person. You can only have one outward facing vibe, I guess you could say, or, or brand again. But the ability to work with creators allows you to actually dabble in so many different spaces Love that. that you just, you frankly can't do if you're just throwing up an ad on Facebook.
2: The other thing is, regardless of the industry you are in today, because most people are trying to grow through media and attention, you're competing with much more than you think you are. Yes. Yes. There's just many more people who have the attention of the audience you want. And most brands suck at doing that, right? Like, <laughs> They're horrible. Most brands are just terrible at doing that. Yeah. They're not cool. They don't create cool content. They don't know how to plug into the internet that it is today. And that's creators' full-time job. Like They know how to garner attention
1: much better than brands. You two have looked at and studied creators more than 99.99% of people in the world. What makes a great creator?
0: So I think this is going to sound overly simplistic, but they need to have some sort of core differentiator. And the easiest way to identify if a creator has that is just to say, can I describe them through a very simple adjective, right? So at the end of the day, people like following people, not businesses, right? And why do you even like following specific people? You like them because they're freaking hilarious or because they are like the most thoughtful about product-led growth. Like they just, they get it, right? Or they are, I don't know, maybe the most contrarian, right? You just love that they are willing to say whatever is on their mind and that they are not hedging anything. And each creator is going to be some complex compilation of many different things. But at the end of the day, the creators that really succeed, the creators that have people who buy into them, who are truly influenced by them, have some sort of spin, have some sort of adjective that you can describe them by. And not everyone loves them. But the people who love them, the people who truly are influenced by them could describe them in that same way. And you could apply this to not just like a person, but if you think about like a newsletter that you subscribe to or a podcast that you listen to, there's normally something where you could be like, this thing is freaking hilarious or again, use insert adjective here. And so, of course, you can look at like their engagement metrics or all these things. But if you are going to partner with a creator, you should be able to articulate like what is their thing and why do we want to access that unique attribute?
2: Mm, I'll give you my perspective, because I think that's a great perspective, Steph, because you yourself are a creator who is known in the space and has done a really good job of that. And like, my perspective is actually from when we acquired the hustle, people would reach out to me and say, like, what makes them so good? Now you've got an opportunity to work with them. Like, there's just a crew in the company that you were a part of that are just incredibly talented and popular online. And the way I try to describe it to people when I sat back and looked at what you all did is, first of all, they're able to find stories that are much more interesting than what most people are actually telling online. Like they're able to find nuggets Mm -hmm. between... love that all of the other noise that are like super interesting. And then they tell that story in a differentiated way and they have what you said, their own unique spin. So they'll either tell something that is counterintuitive, counter to what most people think, or is a funny take on that or something that is very deep and thoughtful and they have like their their angles that they go over. But every single story has an angle. It's not just like repurposing the same thing. And you can describe that to someone. Oh, they, they're able to find like very interesting nuggets of gold. They're able to differentiate the way they tell that and actually always have some sort of unique angle. Oh, like I I, I can do that. I can sit down for a month and try to figure that out. That is hard. <laughs>
0: so that is hard. so hard. <laughs> yeah, so
2: hard. People don't realize how hard it is. Like imagine going to a football stadium with a hundred thousand people screaming at the top of the lungs, and you are the one person that within that noise can garner everyone else's attention. That is just a unique skill set and something that is really hard to master.
0: Yeah, and just like a quick comment on what I said before, parsing it down to an adjective is easy. but to your point, Kieran, actually being able to replicate that is so hard. Even if you were to take something like contrarian, Most people who try to be contrarian are just rude, right? There's a fine (laughs) line there. Most people (laughs) who try to be funny are not never gonna be funny in their whole life. Right. Most people who are (laughs) trying to be super novel and find these little tidbits across the internet will never get there the way the hustle has. So it, it is important to recognize that when you look at your creators that you follow and you you identify, like, oh, their differentiator is just that they're like a little funnier than the the next person. Like I could do that. Not trying to dismiss people, but it's going to be a lot harder to do that than you think.
1: One of the things I've learned from spending time with you, the hustle team, lots of creators, is that that thing that, like that little bit of funny that you said, like that's been somebody's life's work.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: They've been working on being funny for like 20 years, you know, or they've been working on learning this topic for 10 years, you know, or they've been working on building frameworks around ideas for decades. Once you realize how much work it takes to make something seem effortless, then you're like, oh, great. The easier I think it is, the harder it is. That's just like first principle in life and creating. And if somebody makes something look effortless, then they have so much talent and how can I figure out how to work with them is one of the first things I think about.
0: And like you said about brands, you could as a brand go and say, hey, we want to be a funny brand. So we're going to try to get everyone in this company to try to embrace this new ideal, which is going to be really hard, especially because you're going to be trying to curb whatever brand you had before. Or you could partner with this creator who has already mastered this, who already has a bunch of people who have bought into this specific attribute. And in that partnership, they are lending you some of that brand. Yeah, And you can do that so much more quickly. And like I said before, it's basically like being able to place a bunch of small bets. So if you want your brand to be a little funnier, maybe you partner with one creator. But maybe you also want your brand to be seen in another way. Then you partner with another creator who has that element. And you're able to do that so much more quickly than actually changing or shifting your internal brand.
1: We're throwing the word partnerships around as it relates to creators. I wonder if we could have a discussion now around what are some specific types of partnerships a business, a marketer, a brand should be thinking about when it comes to creators?
0: Yeah, we've structured our programs to be different depending on the types of creators we're working with, right? So you can do one-off partnerships with creators. Yeah. You can actually set up a licensing deal where you're partnering for a longer period of time. You can actually acquire their IP. Karen, I'm probably forgetting a bunch, but there's <laughs> tons of ways that people can partner with creators. It's about figuring out, yeah, I guess the longevity right. that you want in that partnership, the control you want in that partnership, the freedom you want to give the creator in that partnership and how much they care about that. Of course, the pay is involved, but you can get pretty creative. And I think most creators are actually... They care more about partnering with a brand that allows them to retain their freedom mm-hmm. than maximizing payout in those partnerships.
2: There's two things you said in that, which are really important for listeners who care and want to learn about how to create a successful creator program. That is really, really important. The first thing is invest in your creator's long-term success. Yes. Like the way that you and the team set up the creator program is that we are inherently invested in your success. And actually the more successful we make you, the more money you earn right? How do we over deliver on uh, our promises to you? We are invested in your success. And if you are that successful, you actually get paid more. The second thing is the thing that most brands are going to fail at, (laughs) which is they are going to launch a creator program. They are going to have creators and then they are going to make them do really boring stuff to fit within their brand guidelines, right? And no creator wants to do that. No creator wants to do that. Like, why would you want to come into a a brand and have your content be churned out and have all of this kind of editorial control on it and make it just into like pseudo product marketing type content? The creator doesn't want to do that Their entire brand is the content they create. And so that editorial freedom is actually really tricky, actually, because I do think that there is obviously going to be some editorial guidelines. You have to do that as a brand, but you have to get the balance right between ensuring that the creator can still have creative freedom and do the cool stuff that they want to do and still plug into your kind of editorial guidelines. And I just want to make one quick point in this. One thing that we have maybe talked about on the show is everything is going pop culture. Yeah. If you went 10 years back and said, hey, where's the funnest place to hang out on the internet on Twitter? FinTech. (laughs) What, accountants? Financial advisors? That's boring. That's going to be boring. No, that's one of the funniest places on Twitter. Business is going to pop culture and brands are going to have to get over the fact that they want to stay in the middle, not upset anyone and not have any kind of differentiated point of view to be able to plug in to that ecosystem. I don't know how you
1: both feel about that. Well, I just want to reiterate, I think you just made a really important point. For everybody listening, if you're working with creators in any capacity in the ways that Steph and Kieran are talking about, guardrails, not guidelines. Mm. Give them some really broad sweeping, like, hey... We don't defame. We don't talk about maybe this one third rail topic. But that's kind of it. It's not like you have to do this very rigid list of things or we will not be okay with it. Guardrails versus guidelines, I think, is going to be a key way to make sure that your brand is successful in working with creators.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to hear from the two of you who have thought through this as well, like... I completely agree. And I even said like, you should be creator first, you should let them do whatever they want. And then (laughs) I assume there's people listening who are like, oh, well, I've seen what's happened to some companies, right? Like just using Spotify as an example, Sure, not taking a stance on how I feel about that topic, but more so how do brands make sure that they give creators this freedom, but then also make sure that their brand isn't hampered along the way. I'm curious specifically, like I know, Kieran, you were involved in in the acquisition. Like, how do you think about that with the hustle?
2: Yeah, I think Kip's right in terms of how we thought about it, which is like broad-based guardrails, like you have to build a good relationship. The creator has to believe that you inherently care about their success. Mm -hmm. If they truly believe that you inherently care about their success, then they're going to be okay when there's times you're like, ah, that's like a little bit outside of the thing that we do. So what we try to do is explain upfront our guardrails. And I'll give people a very tangible guardrail. Like one of our guardrails is we don't disparage people. No. And have we always managed to do that? Maybe not. Maybe we've overstepped the market times, but we've always gone off and corrected that, right? That is just one of our guardrails. We don't disparage people. We want to focus on the positive. We want to like lift people up, not push people down. That to a creator is a very easy guardrail to like internalize. Mm -hmm. And they can say, well, that is either something I cannot commit to, or I can commit to. If they can commit to it, then we inherently care about your success. And when we ask you to change something or that is like outside of that guardrail, they tend to not push back, Now, are creators easy to work with? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. Why? I don't mean that in a harder way to work with, like engineers or all all of these other types of disciplines. I just mean it's a different type of personality and set of problems to take on board. Like, it's a very different group to work with and learn how to actually have them fit within how you want your brand to look and feel online.
0: Yeah. I mean, just consider the type of person who would go out there and decide I'm going to create my own content and I'm going to reach thousands or millions or billions of people and have the confidence to do that. Like that's amazing. And that's definitely the type of person that you want aligned with your company. But to Kieran's point, those are also the type of people who think that they sometimes, not always, deserve the world and that sometimes also forget the business incentive for the companies that they're <laughs> they're working with, right? So I think that's important to keep in mind. But not all creators. Some creators are amazing to work with, but some creators are harder to work with. But I think what I'll say to close that out is there is a deep importance in developing a creator program if you are going to do so at your company and doing so with Creator. So, either if you don't have a creator on your team to headline that program or design it, go and do a bunch of user interviews or truly try to understand what creators are looking for. Because I think so many companies will just take their like CMO or their head of marketing who's never created themselves and be like, oh, go partner with creators. And they don't truly know what these creators are looking for.
1: The very first job I had at HubSpot was like, I wrote the HubSpot blog for a year you don't know what it's like to make something until you just are stuck trying to make something, you know, where you're like, oh, I have to create, I have this deadline where I need to create something and I do not know what to do. And you can't just expect somebody who's great at business or has great expertise to actually transform into somebody who can communicate and share that in a really interesting and compelling way. That is just fundamentally very, very hard. I want to transition, though. We've talked a lot about working with creators, good, the good, the bad, and the other. Probably the biggest skepticism somebody would listening to this would have is like, what is the business impact? Monetization, brand awareness, what are those core impacts that I'm going to get from working with creators? So when we think about working with creators, how, how do you two think about it? Can
2: I give you an idea and then kick it over to Steph? Because I want to just quickly say that there's two things that you can do in terms of how you work with creators. And every, like, this is marketing in general, like there's distribution and reach, right? What I mean by distribution is you do something to be able to acquire something directly into your business, whether that is sign up to your software, whether that is filling out a form, whether that is buying your product, right? It's direct monetization of the work that you do. Then there's indirect, which is reach. Like how do I be... a large part of the business internet and be able to reach all of these people and monetize them onto brand awareness ads. One of the things that people have often asked me is, "Uh, there's really no part of a creator program that would work for distribution. And just one of the quick ideas I wanted to give to people is like there actually is, if you're kind of creative about it, right? Let's go back to creators who influence, which is typically in the B 2 B2C space. But if you pair creators who influence with viral tools, there's actually something kind of interesting there, right? Think about it. If I'm a well-followed designer and design is actually a really great space for this because there are some really big influencers in design. And I just post all of my cool designs that I want to show people how I build these things through Figma, right? It's a really great way for Figma to drive attention to their product. I'm a well-followed business expert. I post my videos and my frameworks through Miro. i well-connected founder. I use Calendly for my Calendly link. I'm an interesting person on Twitter. Every week I do... What are my thoughts through a Loom video? So there are interesting ways you can, I think, pair more kind of distribution that things with creators. But I'll pass it over to you, Steph, in terms of how we think about the monetization of our creator program.
0: Yeah, I mean, we are focused more on that indirect relationship, but that's a choice made by HubSpot. And I don't think every company needs to make that choice, right? There, There are successful creator programs or partnerships that people have done that you can very clearly see you know the direct conversion between a sponsorship or a partnership and the sales that are generated the structure of a program would depend on that decision so that's probably the first decision i mean this is obvious but like what goal are you trying to accomplish and then designing the program in terms of again some of the variables i mentioned how long are you partnering with a creator how are you paying them is it you know incentive based or is it just like a, a lump sum yeah and then just considering that, like the platforms that you partner with a creator on will matter too, right? So if you are more focused in direct conversion, I don't think you should be partnering with podcasters, probably.
1: Not at all. Exactly. I love that point because
0: podcasting has terrible attribution, right? Or if you're also focusing on direct conversion, as much as TikTok sounds amazing, TikTok conversion also sucks. So bad. Even though you can track that a little better, and so you again, should start at that point where you identify, what are we trying to accomplish? What precisely would success look like if we did this for one year? Where would we want to be? And I know, Kip, for example, you've determined that for HubSpot in terms of our indirect goals. And so we've been able to then go and, and in our case, focus on podcasting. Mm -hmm. But that decision might be different for another company.
1: I love that. And it's it's totally true. I think it comes down to the channel and the strategy for your business and whether you're focused on indirect kind of brand awareness versus direct response. I think from our experience, one of the reasons we went indirect is because direct works better when you have this really great alignment between the content and the conversion point. That's a little harder to do with a third-party creator than when you're creating stuff yourself. And so... I love the scalability you get on awareness and kind of indirect monetization with working with creators. And then you can kind of focus your core internal team on that kind of direct response uh, side of things, which I think is a really, really good balance. Gosh, I feel like we have like covered the realm of creators in an amazing, amazing way. Do you have any fun facts to send us out on today, Kieran? What, you got anything else up your sleeve? Uh, I don't have any fun (laughs) facts. Unless you want to know
2: some things about sleep. I don't think people want to know about sleep. <laughs> Steph always has really good data points and things that are interesting. I don't know if you want to tell us about any data point that you think our audience should know about Steph before we leave them.
0: I guess one that maybe you guys should do a full episode on.
2: Oh,
1: I like this. Because
0: I feel like there's so much marketing potential in here. Actually, I'll get you guys to guess. What do you think the fastest growing segment of entertainment is today?
1: Oh, I like this. Uh, gaming.
0: Yes. Kip's got it. Kip, I got to say, I don't think most people would have gotten the answer to that. Kieran, would you have guessed gaming?
2: I was actually going to go with something really obscure (laughs) because I thought it would be a very like unknown thing. But uh, no, I wouldn't pick gaming.
0: Let's start with another question, like HubSpot. HubSpot's involved in so many different marketing channels. Like, Do we do anything currently today in gaming?
1: No, we don't. It's a big opportunity. I'm with you. The gaming as a category is crazy. And what gaming is is changing dramatically too as in terms of what you define as gaming
0: i know that's a simple stat but i think that's something maybe that'll get people's wheels spinning on like wow i run a company and maybe it's tangential to the gaming space or it doesn't even have to be but there's tons of gamers who are interested in many different things and i think that's just you know we talked about how many different platforms today are becoming saturated well this I don't think is one of them, so I think it's it's somewhere people should be right. drawing more of their attention toward.
1: Kieran, I think Steph just gave us a great episode topic. Oh, yeah, I agree. We we need to bring in an expert so we talk all about the intersection of gaming and like business marketing because right now gaming is this very like self contained thing where like it's about the game and it's about marketing the game. How do we actually have that intersectionality between gaming and gaming dynamics and how you actually market a business would be would be a fascinating conversation.
2: Play to earn is probably the most, you know, obvious space in Web3 that has tangible use cases and actually it probably will accelerate in terms of adoption and maturity the fastest. And I just want to do that episode so I can talk about the game Krabada on the Avalanche blockchain where you can buy crabs (laughs) and go and loot other people's minds and you can get a crab today. A crab will set you back about $10,000 so, uh, it's all going on <laughs> and it's all going on oh in week. Oh my
1: god. We're definitely having yeah. multiple <laughs> gaming themed episodes for sure. But the creator episode today was amazing. Steph, we were so lucky to have you on. I hope you'll come back on with us sometime soon in the future.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: And until next week, everybody. This has been Marketing Against the Grain. I hope by the next time we talk to you Kieran has actually slept tonight. We'll give you a Kieran sleepwatch update 2022 in the next episode. Peace out, everybody.
2: See ya. Bye.